We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender until in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of people. In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. On today's show, I'm going to talk more about Joe Biden's recent speech and his accusation, his projection, that all of his opponents are fascists and need to be silenced by the power of the state. And I'm also going to discuss this within the context of Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals, as well as the classic the Prince by Machiavelli. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Good morning and welcome to The Rebellion. Thank you for listening into the show. As I mentioned in the introduction, I want to circle back again today and talk about Joe Biden's recent speech. The speech that was backlit in blood red, uh, the satanic, hellish caricature, one of the worst presentations ever by a president of the United States. You've likely heard numerous different commentators, from Ben Shapiro to Dennis Prager and others, uh, dissect this particular speech, pick it apart, give you their view as to everything that was wrong with it. Not only the content, i.e. the words, and what Joe Biden was communicating, but also the imagery that I've already described, this uh, hellish caricature, uh, this backlit, blood-red backdrop, taking our nation symbol in Philadelphia, Independence Hall, and turning it into something that comes right out of a Star Wars movie in terms of the death of a republic and the rise of a totalitarian empire. So this is how liberty dies. You want to just utter that classic quote from Star Wars. Or in get away from movies and fiction, get into reality and recognize that the symbolism here, and I don't believe it's unintentional. They don't make mistakes. They think these things through. Why did they choose to do this? Why did they choose imagery that smacks of Mussolini, smacks of Hitler, smacks of Stalin, or smacks of Vladimir Lenin? Or, or Miles Red China. You could put any of those historical figures and the leaders of those particular revolutions in those despotic countries, you could put those despots on the same stage and it wouldn't look much different from what they did in their countries when they took human freedom and took uh, liberty and just flushed it down the toilet. So why in the world did the leader of the free world choose that imagery. Well, you might argue he doesn't know what he's doing any longer. He didn't choose anything. He's just a puppet, a senile old puppet that's doing what his handlers tell him to do. Well, that's even more frightening, perhaps, that you've got a bunch of 25, 35-year-old puppeteers telling this octogenarian what to do and what to say, and he obediently does so. It's a very frightening place for us to be. What I want to talk about today is that speech. And like I said, I want to do so within the context of Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals. And likewise, I want to use the psychological, um, the psychological term projection as the 
as the foundation for our discussion, because that's exactly what Joe Biden and the left are doing right now. They're projecting their sins, their misdeeds, their intent. They're projecting themselves onto the enemy to distract from the fact that they are either doing the exact same thing that they're accusing their enemy of doing, or they intend to do it, one or the other, or maybe both. So we will talk about projection. We will talk about Saul Alinsky's rules for radicals and how projection plays into at least one, if not two or more, of his rules for overthrow, rules for radicals. And I want to remind you that Saul Alinsky actually dedicated that book to Lucifer, the great deceiver. Yes, he did. That's a fact. Don't like the fact checkers. Tell you differently. He did. I've looked at one of the original publications. Saul Alinsky dedicated rules for radicals to Lucifer, to the devil, to Satan, the world's first great rebel, the, the, the first to stand against the man, to stand against power, to organize a community against a common enemy. And Hillary Clinton did a lot of her research work in her master's degree. She, she wrote a thesis on Saul Alinsky. And as you know, Barack Obama taught Saul Alinsky after he attained a, uh, a professorship at the University of Chicago. And elsewhere, I think. I don't think he just taught it there. I think he taught it in other places, too. This is a roadmap for a lot of what's going on in our culture right now. Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals. And it doesn't just start there. You could go back to the dawn of time, I suppose. Maybe Saul Alinsky was onto something when he admitted that he was dedicating this strategy, this book, this call to rebellion to the first great rebel. As if he admired what Satan had done in standing against the man and the power of God. But it goes back to Machiavelli, too, in the classic publication of his book, Straight Out of Hell, titled The Prince. So that's today's show. Let's take a break, and when I get back, we'll pick uh, Joe Biden's speech apart a little bit further within the context of Saul Alinsky, Machiavelli, and the psychological concept of projection. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. I'll be right back in a couple minutes. Welcome back to The Rebellion. So in yesterday's show, I hinted at an article by Don Fetter with the Washington Times where he wrote about Joe Biden calling all of his opponents semi-fascists. Now, Fetter rightfully pointed out that Joe Biden and some of his handlers may not even know what fascism is. It seems that fascism has become a word to describe everyone that you disagree with or those that disagree with you. If you don't like what somebody thinks or what someone's doing, especially if you're on the progressive left and you don't like what those on the right are doing, the, the, the knee-jerk reaction today is just call them fascists. And the people that use that label and throw it around so liberally, they don't even know what it means. It's pretty clear they don't. Now, whether or not that's true for Joe Biden's handlers, I don't know. In fact, I suspect it's not. I think they do understand what fascism is. So that's the only point that I would disagree with Don Fetter on. He, his article basically takes the position that Joe Biden and those people that are using the word fascist or fascism, 
they don't even understand the definition. Maybe true, maybe not, I don't know. But what Fetter does do is he points out for all of us that Biden and the Democrats are using this tactic of identifying an enemy, creating an enemy, constructing a straw man of you know, 80 million people that voted for Donald Trump as all being fascists, all being a, a threat to a, a democratic republic, all, all wanting to tear down our constitution and tear down our nation and tear down our freedoms. They've created a boogeyman, and they've put the fascist label on that boogeyman. They've projected exactly what they themselves are doing on their enemy. I mean, stop and think about it. Federer points this out. Which party seeks to constantly expand the size and scope of the state, asks Federer. And then he says this, hint. In 2018, the federal government took 16.5% of GDP. And then he says this year, under the president who's calling us all fascists, he now is saying he's going to hire 87,000 new IRS agents, i.e. stormtroopers, and he has increased that 16.5% of GDP up to 20.1%. I mean, which party believes in top-down hierarchical control over the lives of virtually every American citizen? Which party actually is starting to dictate which bathrooms you can and cannot use? Which party is actually telling you what pronouns are acceptable? Which party wants to intrude into every area of your life? Take control of schools. Take control of your property. Take control of everything. Tax you more and more and more, and thereby confiscate more private property and take it unto itself. Take your private property away and make it quote-unquote public. In other words, take your money and your property and give it to those in Washington, D.C. so that they can use it better for the common good. I mean, which party did I just describe? Did I describe the Republican Party? Did I just describe the philosophy of Donald Trump? Or did I describe the philosophy of other leaders, such as Joe Biden and the Democrats? This is what Don Federer is pointing out in his article. And he says this. He says, fascism has been around a long time. And it has recognizable elements. He points out that in October of this year, it will be the 100-year anniversary since Mussolini marched on Rome and established the first fascist state. That's Don Fetter's claim. And he said there are elements of fascism in the Third Reich and Nazi Germany, and there are elements of fascism in various other totalitarian regimes that have come to power since then. But Federer is laying the the foundation for fascism at Mussolini's feet. Again, you could dispute that and say that it may not have been called fascism before, but it certainly existed even prior to Mussolini. You can go all the way back to Machiavelli in terms of the justification of the quest for power. The ends justify the means. That's basically the message of the prince. Machiavelli is essentially saying that morality is irrelevant. You might want to appear to be good and moral for the sake of power, but 
morality is not an objective good. It's just a utilitarian thing that you use in your quest to control other people because you know better than they do about what what's going to be good for society. Frankly, what's going to be good for you and the governing elites. Again, you might want to go back and read The Prince. If you don't want to read the whole thing, I'd recommend that you go get Benjamin Weicker's book, Ten Books That Screwed Up the World, and Five Others That Didn't Help. That's Benjamin Weicker. He's the author of Moral Darwinism, How We Became Hedonists. Again, Ten Books That Screwed Up the World, and Five Others That Didn't Help by Benjamin Weicker. He has a chapter in there on The Prince, on Machiavelli, and how it is one of the one of the big books that changed the thinking, changed the reality of how we go about governing, how how we view government. Vladimir Lenin considered the Prince Machiavelli's The Prince to be one of his favorite books, and it's no coincidence that the fascists who followed thereafter or maybe some of those that actually preceded this, were grounding a lot of their thinking in Machiavelli. And one of the first premises of Machiavelli is you have to discard God and any objective standard for right and wrong and declare yourself to be the ultimate measure of what should happen in culture in your quest for power. So, Federer points this out. Fascists trample the law underfoot. Fascists don't believe in enforcing the law. How about open borders? Okay, we've got laws about securing our borders, but if you ignore those laws, then are you a fascist? How, how about sanctuary cities that ignore these laws? Are they functioning as fascists or are they fighting for freedom? We've got a president that's, that that has turned the entire nation into a sanctuary nation, my land. Now, is he a fascist or is he a freedom fighter? Again, we have laws against this stuff. We have laws against illegal immigration, and our administration just refuses to enforce those laws. Again, I'm going to ask the rhetorical question over and over again. Is this fascism or is this a fight for a free society? Which is it? I mean... Joe Biden has threatened to pack the Supreme Court. He wanted to do, a, do away with the filibuster. He wants to change the rules. Forget the rules. If we're in power, we're just going to change those rules so that we can retain that power. That is Machiavellian. That's fascism. Now, fascists also need scapegoats. And I'll use this as a springboard into Saul Alinsky and Rules for Radicals. European fascists like... Uh, Mussolini and Hitler, they needed a, con a common enemy. So who'd they come up with? Well, the Jews, uh, the rich, and the old conservative order. You know, those folks were the enemy. And then over here on our side of the Atlantic, fascists have decided that all of our nation's problems are the fault of who? We have to have a common enemy, right? So today it's systemic racism and white privilege. So everything is the fault of a common evil enemy, and that's white males. 
Christians who refuse to get on board with this new sexual ethic or lack thereof, the LGBTQIA nonsense, you're the common enemy because fascists need something, someone, a boogeyman. They need a they need an enemy to blame, to distract. They need to project onto that enemy the very things that they want to do. They will say that that enemy, the Christians, white males, the wealthy, the conservatives, uh, MAGA Republicans, you're the problem. You're the problem because you're going to do all these bad things. You're going to you're going to steal freedom away from the American people when indeed it's the very people that are throwing around these names, these ad hominem attacks, who are guilty of the very tactics, the very sins that they're accusing you of. They are engaged in them as they actually utter their condemnation of you. So this is the nature of totalitarian regimes. And this is what I spoke about yesterday. Now, Alinsky, in his Rules for Radicals, he actually set the stage for this in terms of the contemporary strategies, excuse me, the contemporary strategies. He called for finding a common enemy. Sound familiar? In order for the community, the community organizations that he was encouraging people to set up to unite against the use of a common enemy was necessary in order to accomplish change and in his classic book rules for radicals alinsky finds an external antagonist if you will to turn it into a common enemy it doesn't matter what necessarily he doesn't really care if you don't have an an enemy then find one create one Find something external to your community that you can blame for all that ails you. And that will allow you to unify against that boogeyman and to flail against that straw man. And once the enemy has been established, the community can then work together to oppose it. And you have to have conflict. Again, now we're getting into <coughs> excuse me, Marxist theory. It was economic conflict, bourgeoisie against proletariat, but now it's class conflict, Frankfurt School, critical theory, racial conflict. So if the economic conflict didn't work because capitalism was proving to be better than Marxism and communism in terms of people actually enjoying the fruit of their labor and pulling themselves up and out of poverty, capitalism was proving over and over again to work, whereas communism wasn't working. So the Marxists just shifted the target. They moved the common enemy. They changed the definition of the antagonist. So it used to be the bourgeoisie. Well, that's not what it's all about now. Now it's systemic racism, white privilege. It's those people over there that look like that. That's the common enemy now. Make sense? So the use of conflict allows the group to coalesce against this enemy that's been created. And, and the conflict can be anything. Again, it can be economic. They would continue to use that if it works. But if that stops working, then don't abandon your strategy 
three steps forward and two steps back, that's okay. So take a couple steps back and find another monster, another enemy, something else to rail against, to flail against, to fight against. Now, I want to go through very quickly Olinsky's rules again. I, w- I won't cite all of them. There are 13 of them in his book. Um, the first one is power is not only what you have, but what the enemy thinks you have. Again, the emphasis on an enemy there, right? Um, we'll, let's skip down to rule number four. So rule number one was power is not only what you have, but what the enemy thinks you have. Skip down to rule number Four in Alinsky's book, Rules for Radicals, and it says this, make the enemy live up to his own book of rules. Again, the emphasis there is on the enemy. Now, what he's saying there is, if the enemy believes in an objective truth, in sexual morality, in marital fidelity, if the enemy believes those things, you don't need to embrace those rules. You don't need to believe in them, but make your enemy live up to his rules. Act like you think those things are right and just and good. Act like you think women should be treated in a given way. And when your enemy fails to treat his wife with dignity and honor and respect, then hold him up to his own rules. Ridicule him. Tear him down. Tear your enemy down even though you may have the same exact sins in your life, it doesn't matter. And you may not even believe that women are real. You may not even believe the biological fact of the female. That doesn't matter. You need to make your enemy live up to his own higher ideals of biblical feminism, if you will, that a female is a fact and women have rights. You see this all the time. You know, Bill Clinton gets a, a pass on abusing an intern in the White House, but any time a Republican stubs his toe or proves to be a hypocrite in his relationship with his wife or with, with women in general, that conservative, that Republican, gets excoriated. And frankly, he should. But the duplicity and the hypocrisy from the left is what I'm speaking to right now. Here's another rule, rule number five in Rules for Radicals. Ridicule is the most potent weapon. Now, who are you ridiculing? Again, your enemy. That's who you're going after here. You've created a monster, and you're going to continue to attack that monster because that is the common cause that rallies the community. Ridicule is the most potent weapon, Alinsky says. There's no defense. This is is him speaking. It's almost impossible to counterattack ridicule. It infuriates the opposition. And then their reaction you can use to your advantage. Now, again, ridicule. Think about what Joe Biden did. He created a common enemy. MAGA Republicans. 80 million people that voted for Donald Trump. They're the enemy. They're doing terrible things. Look at them. They want to tear down the republic. They want to steal freedom. Liberty is lost if we don't get rid of all MAGA Republicans. He's created this enemy. But in the meantime, he's ignoring the Constitution on a daily basis and using his executive authority 
in an unconstitutional way to add $1 trillion to our national debt by forgiving, quote-unquote, loans that he has no business forgiving. This is a legislative issue. I mean, the student loan program was not created by a phone and a pen. It was created through Congress. And Congress, by definition, is the only government entity that can change that legislative act or the definition of that legislation. The president has no authority to do that. So while Joe Biden is ignoring the Constitution, he's accusing MAGA Republicans of ignoring the Constitution. While Joe Biden uses our Constitution, our Declaration of Independence, our seminal documents as toilet paper, he's accusing you and me of not having having any care or concern or respect for our seminal documents, the Declaration of Independence and our Constitution. He's projecting his intent and his sins on you. And the shame of it is we let him get away with it time and time again. Alinsky had a point. It infuriates the opposition when they're accused of doing things that they know they're not doing, or if they are guilty of that sin, they know that they're not committing it at the same level as the guy who's accusing them of committing the sin. It's like Bill Clinton accusing somebody of being unfaithful to his wife. It may be true that the guy he's accusing has been unfaithful, but who the heck is Bill Clinton to go there? This is the quintessential phrase, the pot calling the kettle black. That's projection, the psychological concept and term of projection. And it's also Alinsky-esque, because it is the classic creation of a common enemy so that you can rally the community to take power. And it doesn't matter if the accusation is true or false. doesn't matter. doesn't matter at all. And this takes us to Alinsky. Excuse me, not to Alinsky, but to Machiavelli. This is 1513. This goes back a long time. Machiavelli was the secretary of Florence, and he was falsely accused, and he was tortured. And as the result of all of this stuff that he had to endure, he basically came out a very bitter, angry, and corrupt man. And who, like Joe Biden, decided to blame everyone else for what he himself intended to do. Projection. The pot calling the kettle black. In your march toward fascism, accuse everyone else of being a fascist. But this all didn't start with Joe Biden or even Machiavelli. It started in the Garden of Eden because that's when Adam blamed Eve and Eve blamed the serpent. They found a common enemy and they started projecting all of their own sins on that boogeyman. The only solution to this stuff, folks, is the biblical worldview, a worldview of confession rather than conquest, a worldview that honors God rather than elevates yourself to displace him and pretend that you're something that you're not. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion.